So we'll be looking at page 26 in just a bit, and we'll be doing session three of our series on relationships. When I was a young adult going to college, the church I attended had a Sunday school class of boys about 10 to 12 years old. They were a very unruly lot, and they had gone through a bunch of Sunday school teachers who gave up. And I was approached by the Sunday school superintendent as a young adult and said, we've got a class for you. And so it was this group of unruly 10 to 12-year-old boys, most of whom were bussed in. Uh, so their families were not part of the church, and many of them came from broken homes and so on. So it was, it was quite a challenge, but uh, a very growing, uh, spiritually enriching time for me. But I was going to college at the time as well, and I remember one Friday talking with some of my classmates at the University of Michigan at Dearborn, and we were talking about what's going on this weekend. Well, what was going on for my weekend was often radically different than what was going on for their weekend. And I'll just pause long enough to say that that's generally the deal with people who follow Jesus and people who don't. There's a different agenda that translates into a different priority scheme that translates into even different calendars, stuff we do. So my calendar on the weekend was often caught up in ministry sorts of things, and I mentioned that, that I have this class that I teach. And one of the guys who was hearing that said this to me. He said, you must get a lot of rewards out of that. And I remember it striking me as, as a little weird when he said it, but over the years, I've heard it many, many, many times, and so have you, and perhaps you've said it. As I thought about why it struck me as a little weird, was it was because I didn't really think I did it for any reward, at least temporal reward, reward here and now that I get out of that. And yet that was the first response that, that he had that you must get a lot of rewards out of that. The unspoken assumption in it is you do what you do because you get a reward out of it. And the truth is, when you think about it, most people do that, don't they? They think you wouldn't do what you do if you didn't get something in exchange out of it. And something in exchange fairly immediate. The payoff might be a little bit down the road, but we don't want to wait too long. Certainly in our culture, that's give it to me now kind of culture. So the assumption is that I get something out of it. I'll give you another example of how that assumption uh, rears its head. Over the years in ministry, even before being a pastor, just uh, serving the Lord in the church like you all do, I've had occasion to have to go to a brother or sister uh, with the Word of God and say, what you're doing is contrary to, to Scripture. Let, let's talk about that. Now, sometimes that wasn't in an authority position. It was just brother to brother or brother to sister saying that. Do you all know the Bible teaches that we do that? Because we care enough about each other that we're willing to go and we'll say, hey, can we talk about this? So I've had to do this. It's really hard. It's really unpleasant because nobody likes to hear that they're not doing the right thing, Right? And because nobody likes to hear they're not doing the right thing, nobody likes to tell people they're not doing the right thing. Because I don't want to tell you what you don't want to hear. Quite the contrary, I want to tell you what you want to hear. Because I want you to, everybody to like me. And so do you. But I've done it. And I've had to do it over the years. And I remember a person telling me, well, 
quote, you like confrontation. Well, you know, that's a little offensive. Because in my way of thinking, you have to be demented to like confrontation. I don't like it at all. Matter of fact, I hate it. I wish we could all take the Rodney King approach to life in every relationship. That just says, can't we all get along? And I'll just say what you want to hear, and you just say what I want to hear. We may never solve anything, but that's really what I'd like to do. But God says do something different. Now, I bring up those examples for this reason. A lot of times in our relationships, the spoken or unspoken assumption is that we do what we do because we're going to get something out of it. And so we might say something like in a relationship, you know, I'm just getting, uh, I give more than I get. How many times do people do that? What's the assumption? I'm supposed to get. I'm supposed to get, I'm supposed to get at least 50-50. That's the, that's the assumption. Or, in the words of those great theologians, the monkeys, I thought love was more or less a given thing. It seems the more I gave, the less I got. And then I saw her face, and now I'm a believer. Right? But, you know, I thought love was more or less a given thing. I give, I get. We both give. It's got to be. It's a two-way street. 50-50. And the reason I bring that up is... That assumption, I'm supposed to get reward. And I'm supposed to get, and I have to add the word temporal reward, temporal, in time, sometime now, sometime this side of heaven. Because the truth is, if you follow what we're going to see today from Scripture, you will be rewarded. But it may be later. It may be after this life. It may not be a temporal reward. It may be an eternal reward. So I'm not suggesting there is no reward. I am suggesting that we don't do what we do in order to get a temporal reward, a a reward now, something in return now. Think about it. Isn't it at least possible that you and I might be called to give in a way that it would be impossible for us to get anything back? What if you were called or I were called to give, to give our lives. I mean, the extreme. To give my life for somebody. Well, I can't get anything temporal back, can I? Not doing that for the reward I get out of it, at least the reward I get out of it in this life. But those of us who are parents can see that. I can see myself giving my life for my child. And, not, and, and knowing that's going to be the end. So Jesus says in 1 John 3.16. John 3.16, but the other John 3.16. It's 1 John 3.16. You all know John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth, I'm using my King James, in him should not perish but have everlasting life. John 3.16. But 1 John 3.16 says this. Greater love has no one than this than to lay down his life for his friends. And that's the kind of radical agenda 
of relational love that God calls us to. And it's not the agenda that any of us, any of us, myself included, bring into our relationships. If we have that agenda now, it's because we have grown in Jesus, such that our thinking has been changed and our priorities have been changed. But God says, that's the agenda I have for you, for you to go into a relationship and to give without the expectation that you get a temporal reward in return. Greater love has no one than this than to lay down his life for his friends. So, Whitney Houston can say that the greatest love of all is what? Learning to love yourself is the greatest love of all. So you and I can then make a choice. I got God and I got Whitney. So who are you going to go with? You've got God, you've got Whitney. You've got, you've got God, you've got the guy at the water cooler at work saying, you probably get a lot of rewards out of teaching that Sunday school class or whatever it is. You're going to go with God or you're going to go with him? You're going to go with God or all the talking heads on television that tell you you deserve it? You've got to spend a little you time. You gotta be, you gotta be, we're told, a bit selfish sometimes. And you will search in vain. I mean, just keep turning, flipping the pages. All 66 books of the Bible. All 1,189 chapters. That's right. And you won't find that anywhere. So you're gonna go with God, or you're gonna go with what everybody else says. And that's the way most of us come into our relationships. It means then that I come into my relationships and you come into your relationships with an agenda. And often the agenda is unspoken, but the agenda involves, I'm going to get something out of this. And you'll know what your agenda is. Your unspoken agenda will begin to be exposed when you're not getting the thing that you expected to get. And now it'll start to come out. And there are all the ways that I'm not thrilled with this relationship. Why? Because my agenda is not being fulfilled. I hadn't written it down, but yeah, I guess I did expect that you would do this, this, and this. So we come into it with an agenda. And the question is, where does it come from? Where does the agenda come from that says, I'm to get in addition to giving? Well, that goes back to what we've been talking about now in the first two weeks. Most of you have been with us those first two weeks. If you've not been, I encourage you to listen to those two sessions uh, at our website. We have those each session recorded. But let me quickly remind you of how this agenda that we come into our relationships with relates to what we've said in the first two weeks. Two weeks ago, we sought to answer the question, what do I bring to the table in my relationships? And I called it a baggage check. When I come into a relationship... One of the best things I can do for myself and the other party is to do a baggage check. What do I bring into this? And each of us brings these three categories into it. Our nature, our nurture, and our desires. Those three things. Our nature, just kind of who we are. I had a particular set of parents, so I've got a particular set of genes. I've got a particular kind of personality. I've got particular abilities, God-given abilities. It's just my nature. 
But then there's my nurture. It's how I was brought up. It's what I observed. It's what I've learned over the years. I bring both of those categories into every relationship, nature and nurture. And then I bring my desires into it. My expectations, sometimes spoken, most often not, unspoken expectations about what this is going to to do. And then last week we asked the question, okay, we all come to the table with this baggage. We all bring our nature, nurture, and desires into the relationship. But the question then last week was, but what's the problem? I mean, as I think about, I said last week, my nature, who I am, and my nurture, both of those together comprise who I am, I'm pretty cool. So if there's a problem in our relationship, you can be fairly sure it's not me. That it's what you're failing to do or it's what you're doing that you shouldn't. So what's the problem? Our assumption is because we have a fairly high view of ourselves and our nature and our nurture that we bring to the table The problem then is not in me, it's with you. But we saw last week, if you were with us, that in fact, the problem is an internal. Romans chapter 7, verses 21 through 25, we saw last week. That that I have a principle at work within me. A law of sin, the Bible calls it in that passage. And that as a result of that, I am a prisoner The Bible uses that language. In an inner conflict, that's the language it uses in Romans 7. And it asks the question, who's going to rescue me? That's the word that's used. Who's going to rescue me from this body of death? But then it says, thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ who gives us the victory. So the Bible teaches that the problem is really not outside of us in our relationships. It's really inside of us. It's internal. It's me. We have met the enemy, as I said last week, and he is us. And so I come with an agenda to all of my relationships. The question we want to ask today is this. So whose agenda am I going to pursue? I come with an agenda. So do you. And now the question is, whose agenda am I going to pursue? Now, immediately you're thinking, I know whose agenda I'm not going to pursue. I'm not, a, I'm not pursuing that crumb cake's agenda. There is no way on God's green earth. But here's the thing. I'm not talking about your agenda versus his or hers or your boss's or any of that. When I say whose agenda are we going to follow, yours or whose do you think? God's. See, ultimately, the fight about agendas is not yours versus his or hers or my boss's or any of that. The fight, the battle for you and for me is whose agenda am I going to follow? Mine or God's? And God has a radically different agenda for our relationships than we do. We're going to see that today. But the question you're going to need to ask and answer, as am I, is, am I going to follow God's agenda or am I going to hold on to my agenda? When I counsel a couple, and some of you could attest to this because you have come, and you know that what I'm saying is true. Very first session, I always say this. 
we can, we can solve your problem. But here's how we can solve your problem if we have three things. If we have one party who's willing to cooperate, a second party who's willing to cooperate, and the third thing is an agreed standard to which we will submit ourselves. And I'm telling you up front what that standard is. It's God's word. It's the Bible. And I have never once had any any couple, two people, whether they're married, whatever, they're just I've never once had anybody come and say, no. Every last time people go, yes, I'm good with that. Count me in. I'm cooperating. You're cooperating. That's why we're here. This is going to be good. And we're going to look at God's word together. And we start looking at God's word together. And usually if it's a couple, you know, I'll spend some time separate with the guy. My wife and I will spend some time separate with the gal. We'll go over what God's word says about her when we're with her. And she'll say, but I don't want to talk about me. I want to talk about him. And next time we have an appointment, she can't make it. And the next time she can't make it. And when I'm talking to him, I'm talking about him. But he doesn't want to talk about him. He wants to talk about her. And I remind him, I say, you remember that thing we did? Two people and an agreed standard? Forget that noise. Chuck that. Because the truth is, even in the relationship of this counseling session, those folks came in with their agenda. And they weren't willing to submit their agenda to God's. And I'm telling you, friends, the question for you and for me today is whose agenda are you going to pursue? Is it going to be God's or is it going to be yours? And I'm not even talking about the other person. Truth is, I don't really care that much about the other person. I care about you getting it together with God. And then in turn, that will help you get it together with people. You and I can't control what the other person does. What really matters is your relationship with God and whether or not you're going to pursue your horizontal relationships with people according to his agenda or yours. Which brings us then to page 26. Page 26 in your notes. Page 26 was just an activity that you have, that you can go through that talks about things that God has done for us from Ephesians 1 through 3. And then there's the second page, page 27, that talks about things that we are called to do. Now, I don't know whether any of you were able to do that. If you were not, I encourage you to think about doing that. I'm going I'm to just bounce through a list of things from Ephesians chapters 1 through 3 that have been done for us, things that we have, things that God has given us, and then things that we're called to do so that you get a flavor for his agenda, okay? You may not be able to get these all down. That's okay. It's recorded. But here are some things that we've received from God. Chapter 1 in verse 3 says we've received every spiritual blessing in Christ. Every spiritual blessing in Christ. Chapter 1 in verse 5 of Ephesians says that we've received the adoption of sons. Every spiritual blessing in Christ, adoption into the family of God. Chapter 1 and verse 6 and chapter 2 as well say we've received grace from God. Every spiritual blessing in Christ, adoption into the family of God, grace from God. 
Chapter 1 and verse 7, we've received redemption. That our sins have been paid for. That's what that's about. And as a result of that, we've received forgiveness. So every spiritual blessing in Christ, adoption into the family of God, grace from God, redemption, forgiveness. It tells us in chapter 1 and verse 9 that we have received the knowledge of his will. The knowledge of his will. We know what he wants. That's what the knowledge of his will is. I don't have to guess at it. Chapter 1 and verse 13, we've received the Holy Spirit. Chapter 2 and verse 19, we've received citizenship in heaven. We sojourn here, but our citizenship is really in heaven. Now, that's just a partial list, chapters 1 through 3. If you were to read through there and you would just look carefully about the things that we've received from God, that's just a partial list. Now, let me just say, is that a pretty cool list? Of all of these marvelous things that God has done for us. And now, in turn, here are the things that chapter 1 and verse 3, or excuse me, chapters 1 through 3 call us to do as a result of what we've received. Verse 4 of chapter 1. We're called to live holy and blameless. Chapter 1, verses 12 and 14, we're called to live for the praise of His glory. So what am I called to do as a result of what I've received? I'm called to live holy and blameless for the praise of His glory. Thirdly, in hope based on His power. I'm to live in hope based on his power. Hope in the Bible is a confident expectation. Not a wish. I hope this happens. But a confident expectation based on his power. Chapter 1, verse 18. We are called to do good works because of what we receive. Chapter 2 and verse 10, and this is the last one. We're called to be members of God's household, active members of his household. Chapter 2, verses 19 through 22. Chapter 2, 19 through 22. Now again, that's just a sampling. Three chapters in the Bible. Stuff we've received from God, stuff we've been called to do as a result of what we've received from God. God starts to give you the outlines of his agenda for your relationships and my relationships. And nowhere in any of that is anybody to come with a notion that says, what can I get out of this? Now with that, let's look at God's agenda for our relationships. Page 29, session 3. On page 29, middle of the page, where it says opening activity there, the following statements are good and they show positive areas in a relationship, but can you identify the underlying agenda? I'm so happy we don't argue like we used to. I just love being with you. It's great to know that I found someone I can trust. We have such a great sex life. Before I met you, I was so lonely. And you could add all kinds of statements to that. But what's the underlying agenda? They're all good things. That's all great. I mean, if I hear somebody saying that's what's going on in a relationship, I'm terrific. It's all good. It's all positive. But there's still an underlying agenda there. And the underlying agenda has to do with what the person is getting out of the relationship. 
Now, I'm glad that that stuff is all happening, but here's the problem. Is there any guarantee that all that stuff's going to be happening? And if that's the agenda, then, that you come with, this is the kind of things, the things that should happen. This is the way it should be. If I don't get that out of it, what's my reaction going to be? So it's right and it's good to thank God for things like this. But the truth is we don't know that things like that are going to happen in a given relationship. And so let's begin to see then, instead of our agenda, let's see God's agenda. Bottom of page 29, two themes about relationships predominate in Scripture. The power of self-interest is still present even in the one who knows Jesus, the believer. While the control of sin is broken, the sin that remains in us still puts up a real fight. You all know what's being said in that sentence, the control of sin is broken. Here's what it means. Although we were slaves to sin, the Bible teaches, before we come to Jesus, we are no longer slaves to sin. The power of sin has been broken. And therefore, I can live in the power of the Holy Spirit. I can live a life that's pleasing to the Lord, whereas prior to coming to Jesus, that was impossible. But even though I can do that, it's still a struggle. It's still a fight. And so the power of self, the power of self-interest is still present even in the one who has come to Jesus. Now notice the rest of that paragraph. We will never escape the power of self-interest in this life, even in our best relationships. In fact, get this sentence. The more satisfying the relationship, the less conscious you will be of self-interest. Why? Because all the stuff on the previous page is all happening. All my stuff's being fulfilled. This is when you know about your self-interest, when, forgive the grammar, it ain't being fulfilled. Ah, now how do I react? When everything's going smooth, it's all good. It's when it's not. And when it's not, frankly, this side of heaven is most of the time for many of us, depending on the kind of relationship you're in. So the first principle taught throughout Scripture is the power of self-interest that's still present in all of us. Secondly, though, notice this. God has a much bigger agenda for our relationships than we do. And the question at the beginning I said was, whose agenda are we going to pursue, ours or God's? What's God's agenda, then? Ephesians chapter 4, God's desire in our relationships, page 30. Now, the reason I had you write down those Ephesians 1 through 3 things, things that we've received from God and things that we're called to do from God, is because the book of Ephesians has six chapters to it. And it's divided into two halves. The first half is chapters 1 through 3. And chapters 1 through 3 are all about who we are and what we're supposed to and, and what we're called to do. And then the second half, chap, beginning with chapter 4 and then through chapters 5 and 6, starts in verse number 1 saying, now based upon all of that, based upon all of these things that you have received from God, live a life worthy of your calling. And then it goes on to explain how you and I live a life worthy of the calling that we have. The calling that we have in chapters 1 through 3. Things we've received from God and thus things we're called to do. And I've got to live in a way that fulfills that calling. And chapters 4, 5, and 6 are about how that happens. So at the bottom of page, page 30... Second to the last paragraph there, it says, Paul, who wrote Ephesians, 
fellow named Paul wrote that. If you don't know who Paul is, it's okay. But he urges us to quote in verse 1 of chapter 4, live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Our lives should reflect this calling. Specifically, Paul says it should show up in our relationships, and in particular, in our relationships in the body of Christ. In other words, you can't take the good news of Jesus, the gospel, seriously and not take your relationship seriously. I've actually had people tell me from time to time that there's church and there's my relationships. And there's no connection between us. Friends, nothing could be further from the truth. The relationships that you have in the church are a ground in which you play out either your agenda or God's agenda one. And it is within the body of Christ, the family of God, the church, that we learn what we've received from God, what we're called to do, and we help each other to fulfill that. The notion that there's my relationship life and there's my spiritual life, my church life, that are in different compartments is foreign to Scripture. It's foreign to the book of Ephesians. You can't take the gospel seriously unless you take your relationships. Particularly, he's going to focus on relationships in the body of Christ. Now, look at page 31. Beginning then in chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, a call to unity in the relationships is issued. Maintain the unity of the Spirit. And we're told to maintain, not create, these relationships. If we're Christians, we're automatically in relationship with other Christians. Now, here's why that's important. If you're a member of this body of Christ, this church, which is what's being talked about in Ephesians chapters 4, 5, and 6, the church, body of Christ, relationships in it. If you're, if you're a member of this, which many of you are, when you came and took a look at our church, there was a sense in which you chose relationships with the people that are here. Because you looked and you said, they're pretty nice. I like them. I enjoy being with them. And whatever else your criteria was, and you decided to join. And we're glad that happened. But there's a sense in which you really didn't choose it. Because one, you really didn't get to know everybody before you decided, did you? Further, since the time that you decided to join, other people have come in. And you're stuck with them. You didn't know beforehand who those people were going to be. They just showed up with all of their baggage, with all of their nature and nurture, and all of their problems. And now here you are in this relationship. The truth of the matter is, you're in a relationship where you didn't get to choose. And that's a really good thing. You're automatically part of it when you come to Jesus. And if you've come to this particular place to serve Jesus and to grow in Jesus, you didn't get to choose who all the people were. So it is a marvelous, marvelous laboratory for you to grow in relationship and learn to deal with people in relationship that if you chose, <laughs> you think about it, right? Isn't it a good thing that God's the one who does the choosing? Because if we chose, we would have all our criteria about what somebody's supposed to look like and what they're supposed to do, and the beauty of the body of Christ would be removed. 
You didn't choose it, so you maintain it. You don't create it. We are united with other believers because we're united with Christ and we share the same spirit. Therefore, our relationships, friends, get this if you will, are gifts to be managed and taken care of. Mm. The relationships that you are in, in the church and elsewhere, a sovereign God has providentially placed you in those. And they're gifts from God to be taken care of. You're a steward of those relationships. And we will be accountable to God for how we handle those relationships. And so, middle of that paragraph, gossip, slander, anger, and so on, devalue and harm those gifts. But if we're willing to pursue for Pursue, forgive, and serve. We demonstrate care for those gifts. The passage goes on to say, make every effort. Because the truth of the matter is, since you still struggle with sin, and since I still struggle with sin, and everybody sitting in here still struggles with sin, it's going to take effort. It will be hard. Nobody in here came ready-made with all of the equipment and all of the ideal spiritual qualities needed for relationship. Nobody. We're all in the process of growing. And that's why it's necessary for God in Scripture to say, you've got to make effort for it. Now notice the paragraph. What is it about hard work that can be satisfying? Paul, who wrote it, knows that relationships, even among people who have the Spirit, will not be easy. The biblical worth ethic for relationships is that it will require work. And notice this, though, the work is worth it. But it's only worth it if we have the right agenda. The praise of God. If the agenda is what can I get, we may easily conclude it ain't worth it. It's not happening fast enough. I haven't, I haven't made as many friends as I want to as quickly as I want to. The friends I have made are so-so. And so we'll check out. It's not worth it. The investment I'm putting in is not giving me the adequate return on my investment. But notice the whole agenda is, what do I What do I get? But if we have the praise of God in mind, then it will be worth it, even though it takes effort. And we're told in this passage, verses 1 through 6 of Ephesians 4, middle of the page, be humble, gentle, patient, forbearing, and love. Even before specific actions are mentioned, there are particular qualities and attitudes that are necessary in our relationships if we're going to give with God's agenda rather than focus on getting with our agenda. Let's bounce through those quickly. Humility. This quality enables us to see our own sin before we focus on the sin and weakness of another. Ah. If you care to jot down Matthew chapter 18, Matthew chapter 18, verses 25 and following. Matthew 18, 25 and following. There Jesus gives the parable of the fellow who was, who owed, in equivalent terms today, millions of dollars to someone. And he was hauled into debtor's prison and before the court, and he begged for mercy. You all remember that? And, and the guy gave mercy and let him go. And immediately Jesus says he found a guy who owed him a relatively few dollars and he grabbed the guy by the neck and he said, you pay me what you owe me. And Jesus said, that man will not be forgiven. Why? 
because he fails to forgive, which is an indication that he realizes how much he's been forgiven. The humble person can forgive because they see their own sin before they see the sin of others. And let me just issue a really sobering warning about this. In Matthew chapter 6 in your Bible, again, you just jot down the passage if you care to, Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 13, it's what we call the Lord's Prayer. And there Jesus says in the prayer, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. But then right after the prayer is done, Jesus goes on in verses 14 and 15 to give an explanation of the whole forgiveness thing. And he says this in verses 14 and 15, Matthew chapter 6. If you fail to forgive your brother from your heart, your Father in heaven will not forgive you. What's that about? I thought when I came to Jesus... Now I'm guaranteed to go to heaven, so who cares how I treat everybody else? But Jesus is saying that it's an indication of the reality of your own spiritual condition as to whether or not you are willing to forgive somebody else. If you're not willing to forgive others, it is proof positive you've not been forgiven yourself. That you have never really come and had a spiritual awakening before Christ. So humility, it sees our own sin before we focus on others. Gentleness, a gentle person is not weak, but someone who uses his strength to empower others. Using your gifts and abilities to empower other people. It's not weak, it's gentle. The word is sometimes translated meek, meek, M-E-E-K. And the word that's translated sometimes meek or gentle was originally in New Testament times used of a bit that went in a horse's mouth. The bit was called meek. Or gentle. Now here you have this powerful animal that can be directed by the small thing, the bit. And so it's not somebody who's weak. Maybe somebody who has great power, great strength, but they don't use that strength for their own agenda. They gently use it, meekly use it for the benefit of others. This is why it's so horrendous. If, if a man ever touches a woman violently. If, if someone in a position of strength abuses that position of strength. It's why it's so heinous when a parent would abuse their child. Because they're in a position of physical strength. Gentleness, meekness, power under control. Patience places the needs of others higher than our own. We don't come with a self-centered agenda. And then forbearance. A forbearing person, notice this, is a person who is all three. Humble, gentle, and patient, even when provoked. (laughs) You say, you know, I'm okay as long as you don't get my space. But if you push my buttons, look out. But Ephesians chapter 4 says we forbear with one another, even at times when we're provoked. Top of page 32. Because we have received grace... We are to give grace. Because we've received it, we give it. So that's why you did the exercise then in Ephesians chapters 1 through 3. What have you received? Well, you've received all kinds of stuff. So have I. If you've come to Jesus. 
And because we've received, then in turn we're to give. And if we are unwilling to give, Matthew chapter 6, if we're unwilling to forgive and give to others, it's a sure indication that we don't realize what we've received and perhaps have not received it. There is one Spirit, one Lord, and one Father. And this is the basis of the unity that we have. It's the unity of the Trinity, not our ability to get along. We get along because Father, Son, and Spirit have allowed us to do so. Now, if that's going to happen, Ephesians chapter 4 goes on, and in our closing minutes, we'll just look at what Ephesians chapter 4 has to say about a few other issues. Bottom of page 32, an appreciation of diversity. Bottom of 32, it says, But to each one of us has been given, but to each one of us grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. And if you'll just look at the top of that subsection where it says an appreciation of diversity, how often do we see diversity as a hindrance to good relationships and God's purposes? And so I just ask you this question. When people are different than you are, or different than I am, why is that so hard for us to handle? But let's be honest, it is. You come into a body and you got people with their baggage, and their baggage is different than my baggage. And here's why it's so hard. Because my baggage is better than your baggage. That's why. You got lousy baggage. I know Brown said we all have baggage. We do all have baggage. But there's baggage and there's lousy baggage. And you got lousy baggage. And you brought your lousy baggage into this relationship. And if you could make your baggage conform more to be like mine, then everybody would be okay. Now, I'm being that only a little bit facetious because that's really what we think. The world would be a lot better off if more people were like me. And so my agenda is not to use what I am to help them and to be helped by what they are. That's God's agenda. My agenda is to make more people conform to my standard. And that's why I don't like diversity within the body or other relationships. So that, so why do we use these gifts? Top of page 33, so that the body of Christ may be built up. God wants us to mature, to be built up. Stop acting like infants. He wants the things that ruled Christ's heart to rule ours as well. Relationships are God's tool for doing that construction. And this is where the true value of relationships runs counter to what we normally think. We think things are going well only if we're getting along with other people. But God says that it's also when we're not getting along that he's accomplishing his purposes. If you quit at the first sign of fatigue when you exercise, you miss the chance to become more fit. Exercise after exhaustion is the most efficient, productive time for physical fitness. It's true in relationships as well. God has designed our relationships to function as both a diagnosis and a cure. Here's what's being said there. You get put into a situation where people are not like what you want them to be. And that diagnoses your heart. It starts to expose stuff about you and about me. And so we're not getting along. Things are tough. I'm in this relationship with at work, at church, at home, with people that I really wouldn't choose. But God's using that to diagnose what's going on in your heart, what's really ruling your heart, what your agenda, unwritten, most often is. And then if you will stay with that, to use that relationship to provide the cure as well. Now, there's God's agenda and there's my agenda. 
and they clash with each other because I have, you have, the problems mentioned at the bottom of page 33. And we're going to pick that up next week because we are, we are finished for now. But we can finish that fairly quickly next week, so I hope you all are able to come.